Hey there, Davis here. This is part two of the Dr. Charles Kohlhaas interview series recorded a couple of years back. This part picks up on the tail end of the discussion regarding the 1973 oil embargo, how that affected markets, and the lasting effects we still see today. It also covers topics like the petrodollar, oil contracts, and what Dr. Kohlhaas predicted about the future of energy. Remember, this was recorded way before I even worked here, so COVID had not factored into the equation yet. I think I've talked enough at this point, so please enjoy this interview from deep within our archives. From that, there was, was there any policy that really, what was the effect of that? Did that really change the way oil policy was made from that kind of oil embargo? Yeah, it made a lot of policies. And, and what happened was the United States said, oh my God, you know, we've got, we've got to do something here. And so the United States started passing policies. The other thing that happened was that the Saudis said, okay, we're going to throw the American companies out of ownership in Aramco, and we're going to jump the price. And essentially, they jumped the price, which had been traditionally between $2.50 and $3 up to about $15. This, this is basically a five- to six-fold increase in price. It's a huge impact on the European and United States economies. Suddenly, billions of dollars, billions are flowing out of Europe and the United States and Canada into the Middle East. It's a huge transfer. And because of that price increase, the oil companies, mostly American, but others as well, said, oh my God, how much money can we make if we can collect $15 a barrel instead of $2.50? We better get busy and start finding some more oil fields and get them on production. As a result, American companies swarmed the world. And over the next few years, Venezuela doubled production, Mexico doubled production, the North Sea came on production. The entire North Sea was developed in the late 1970s. And it was developed in a hurry because people want to take advantage of these high prices. And, and the government, in the meantime, is looking at all this money being transferred out of the country. Suddenly, we're importing, going from zero imports, basically. Actually, there were a small level of imports that Eisenhower had established in the 1950s called import quotas. And that varied between 5 to 10% that were allowed to be imported into the United States. So we'd gone from, from that small amount of import by the middle of the 1970s, we're importing half our oil. And partly because the oil companies are saying, you know, we can make a lot of money by drilling 10,000 barrel a day wells in the Middle East or in the Far East or in Latin America rather than 100 barrel a day wells in Wyoming. And so that's what we're gonna do. And they swarmed. Now, the price structure was not an open structure. Nobody knew where the oil was anymore because American companies had been put out of Aramco and other countries followed as well. Same thing happened to Shell, same thing happened to BP in various parts of the world. And so it was like, where is the oil? Who is supplying it? And where are the loads? This led to what's called the spot market. And essentially, a guy became rather famous later named Mark Rich. 
was a trader with Fibro, and he set up, he had the ability to find loads of oil and find people that wanted to buy them, and he set up the spot market in oil. He became the king of the spot market, as they called him. And he finally moved over to Zug in Switzerland, and a lot of the oil trading moved over to Switzerland. And the trading was done by oil traders, and these guys, there were about 60 to 80 of them worldwide. They all knew each other's voice on the phone. They were a rather flamboyant group, and that's how oil got traded at, by the tanker load and how it got priced. <laughs> it was a bizarre system, and there was nothing open about it. There was nothing public about it. These were all, you might say, the whole industry got shady. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. zero regulation. It's just these 60 guys calling each other on the phone navigating the entire world's oil market. Yeah, well, and the and the major companies had lost control of it. So so this this was a chaotic situation. And I mean, when I say chaotic, I mean, if you knew some of these oil traders at the time, they, they were some rather bizarre guys. And, and, um, and they were trading oil in large quantities. So... The department chairman, School of Mines, he's saying, you know, he says, my God, he says, how much oil do you think there is in the world? And I started, I started making a survey, and what I did is I went out and I said, all right, all the major supplies of oil, they're going to come on stream within five years, are already d discovered, and they're somewhere in development. For instance, in the North Sea. You could sit down and look at contracts a lot that had been let and announced for platforms and pipelines and so on and so on. And you could do the same thing in Venezuela. You could do the same thing in the Far East. You could do the same thing all over the world. You just sit down and look at all these contract announcements and go back five years and you knew how much oil was going to come on stream within the next five years. So it was pretty easy to figure out that Going into the 1970s, we had maybe 10 to 12% surplus capacity that most of these companies maintained. By the time you got to 1980, 81, I'm sitting there looking at it and I'm saying there's 28, 30% surplus capacity here. What's going to hold the price up? The price is being held up because nobody knows how to get around the trading system by these oil traders. There's no open market. What ended the whole deal was at the Oil and Money Conference in November 1982 in London. And this was in early November, as I recall. A little lady stood up who could hardly see over the podium, and she announced she was going to take control of the oil price. Her name was Rosemary McFadden. She was head of IMAX. She said, I'm going to start trading a contract on an IMAX for a thousand barrels of oil at West Texas Intermediate in tanks in Cushing, Oklahoma. And we all listened to this and we thought the NYMEX, they trade chickens and eggs. <laughs> I mean, this is, they're gonna take control of the oil market? Well, it took a little while to get through the skepticism. She started trading, or the NYMEX started trading the following March 30th, 1983. And essentially that was the end of what I call the decade of chaos. Now, during that decade, what was the United States government doing? 
they pass 55 mile an hour speed limits. Can you imagine driving from Denver to California at 55 miles an hour across Utah and Nevada? It was not fun. They, pa they even allocated gasoline to individual gas stations. They passed pricing systems. They said, okay, you know, you can get, it, you can get the world price for new oil which is an incentive to go out and discover new oil because all the companies were running around the rest of the world discovering new oil, but they weren't doing much in the U.S., so the U.S. production rate was going down pretty fast. Suddenly, though, they brought on the North Slope. The North Slope of Alaska had been discovered in the late 1960s, but the pipeline didn't get improved for several years. So it finally came on production, and Two million barrels a day came on production out of the North Slope of Alaska, which was a good deal for the United States. And that happened in 76 or 7, something like that. So that helped the United States a lot. But the government was still establishing all these tiers. They wound up with something like 17 or 18 different tiers of pricing in the United States. New oil, new old oil, old new oil secondary oil, all this, there were all these different categories which made no sense. And it, it was a lot of problems here. It made no sense. But once she started trading in 1983, it took a year or so for the world to figure out that this was a real contract that had real influence and you could actually buy oil on the New York Mercantile Exchange and you could actually collect it and own it in a tank in Cushing, Oklahoma, real oil. That changed the whole game. And in 1986, the price crashed because by this point, the traders on the open exchanges realized if I don't buy this barrel of oil, I can buy another barrel of oil. And if I don't get that one, I can buy another one. There's plenty of oil in the world. And so that 28 to 30 percent surplus capacity became obvious and the price crashed in 1986. And it crashed down and it averaged about 18 bucks, plus or minus two or three, for the next 20 years, while we worked off that entire surplus. And that was the game changer. When she did that, it was one of the most profound events in the history of the oil business and in the history of our economy, and very few people ever mention it again. Yeah, no, I had no idea that, I knew the NYMEX was started in, 19, in 1983, but I had no idea the impact it had in that it actually led to not only the, the crash in 86, but then it's what sustained it and kept those prices low all throughout the 90s. But then really the turn of the century, or the, you know, the turn of millennium came around, and that was when new technologies, new, 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 new things were coming online. Is that really, when did you realize that the oil and gas industry was, was changing from where it was from the late 90s, now moving into the early 2000s, mid-2000s? Probably around 2005. Um, I had a call from a gentleman in California uh, who managed the business of affairs of a California farmer. Now this is California agribusiness. It's huge. And farms out in California can be very large. I mean, uh, this particular farming operations, they had something like 60,000 dairy cattle and you know, the largest pistachio grower in the United States and the largest this and the largest that. And, and uh, I think he had something like 75,000 hogs. And 
huge agri agribusiness. And if you're familiar with California agribusiness in the Central Valley, it, I mean, this is big business. And this fellow called me, and he managed all this gentleman's non-agricultural investments, which included all sorts of things, including the oil business. And he'd invested in a company that was working down in the Barnett Shale. And they didn't quite understand what was happening down there. He asked me if I'd go on the board and represent them in uh, this small company, which I originally decided I didn't really want to, but I, they talked me into it. it. Turned out to be an interesting experience. And that's when I realized, aha, uh -huh, this uh, combination of horizontal drilling and multi-stage fracturing put together by George Mitchell in this area. And in fact, we had part interests in some wells operated by Devon, which uh, had been sold to Devon by George Mitchell. And, um, and that was when I started to realize this, this is gonna be a game changer, and which it was. And um, we had no operations uh, this company had dealt entirely in non-operating working interests. So we had working interests with several operators, and it was interesting to watch how the different operators did it. And some of them were much better than others, typically. And, um, but that's when I first realized what was happening. Interesting, yeah, that, that combination really really took it off. And, and that, from 2005 up until July, about 2008, the oil price had grown but it was running steady in the run-up in the summer of 2008 there was a huge spike it went all the way up to about 148 dollars a barrel and, and people were freaking out a, a lot of people were were thinking it was due to we were low on production there was a lot of theories going around but you mentioned something in in, in kind of the the talk we had before that i that i had never even thought of and it makes total sense well okay what happened was as as i mentioned earlier uh 1986 it became obvious that there was a, a much greater capacity to produce in the world than there was demand. And it was running about 28, 30%. And once, once this, the pricing and bidding for oil got on an open exchange, then the traders pretty soon could figure out, you know, if I, if I don't buy this particular barrel, I can buy another one. And, and that's what finally led to the price crash in 86. Now, it took, 20 years basically to work off that surplus, which puts us to the 2005, six, seven. And at that point, the world demand for the first time in history is reaching the ability of the world industry to produce. So it's starting to put upward pressure on prices. And at the same time, exactly concurrent with that, the United States oil industry is figuring out how to produce more oil out of these shale zones, which we've known about. We've known about these things for decades. We've known about the Bakken. We've known about the oil in the Permian. We've known about all this, but it wasn't economical. We couldn't get it out economically. Suddenly we could. And so countries, companies started to swarm these areas just like they had swarmed the world. So they swarmed into the Bakken, they went down to the Eagle Ford, and they started extensive development. And 
U.S. production increased by four and a half million barrels a day. But world demand is going up fast. Part of that's due to the demand from China, to it's other countries as well. It's also some disarray in the Middle East. Russia wasn't quite up to full speed again under Putin, but they were, they were getting there. So what happened in 19, or excuse me, in 2008? What happened was the price had started up and suddenly it, it had this big spike. Now, realize we're also going into the financial crisis in late 2008. But in May, in June, the price is going up fast. It spiked in July to like $147 WTI on the NYMEX. And if you look at Brent, you look at others, there's always the variations. Uh, we have to recognize that after oil started trading on the NYMEX, gas started trading a few years later, uh, they started trading a contract in London on Brent oil, which you see quoted a lot, on the ICE, the International Commodity Exchange. And other uh, exchanges have traded some since. There's some trading in Dubai and, and so on. Now, what happened with that spike is it started up in May. One day in May, there was like $9 increase in one day, and then the next day, and the next day. And... I had calls from Washington, you know, Charles, you know, what do we do about this? State Department was all concerned about foreign policy and what can we do? The United States can't afford to have these huge increases in oil prices. How high is it going to go? Where is it going to stop? Uh, people in the Congress were concerned about what legislation can do we need to pass, et cetera, et cetera, because we can't tolerate this. Well. I went back, I had some meetings. It took a bit to figure out what really caused it. What really caused it was the Chinese were buying heavily, starting in May, in June, and into July. Basically, it seems to build up a large store so that nobody coming to the Olympics would run out of gas. As soon as the Olympics were over, the price dropped again. <laughs> so. This is the kind of thing that the government, not understanding what the forces are that are causing these price changes, and not understanding the industry, can pass a lot of bad policy. And I'm worried that the situation in this world right now, they're liable to pass bad policy again. And and, and so I guess then the, then the next question is, what policy, the answer sometimes isn't always policy, but sometimes it is. There needs to be regulations. We can't just let oil traders continue to do this. We need the NYMEX. We, we can't have these rogue oil traders doing the new. What is the next then step for oil and gas policy? Where, where I guess, where are we going in terms of that policy? I don't know. I hear, I hear various rumors about what's being considered in Washington, but mainly right now, let's face it, the ad new administration is totally concerned with being pecked on continuously from all directions uh, about everything. And, and frankly, I'm concerned that policies are not being well thought out. 
because they're totally distracted over all these allegations of Russian collusion and various other uh, allegations from the Democrats. Uh, the Republicans haven't indicated that they're able to get things through Congress very well. Uh, the Democrats aren't cooperating at all. And the disarray of the government right now is, is forestalling getting any type of good, coherent policy in place, which concerns me. Yeah, I guess what it sounds like from my perspective is that the people who are creating the policies, the people who are change, who are actually trading the oil, fundamentally don't understand what they're actually talking about. And it may need it takes people like you and other people who are really tapped into the industry to actually create the policy because, like, like I just mentioned, those people aren't really tapped into what's going on in the day to day life of a petroleum engineer. Well, part of it is there's still this this overhang of the idea of a globalized world which was came out after the fall of the Soviet Union and that the world is going to go into a free trade system worldwide. Uh, everybody's going to trade with everybody else and it'll be a very efficient system. And theoretically that's true. But when you are trading with people who become adversaries or when part of that system breaks down into utter chaos the way Syria has in Iraq and some of these oil producing countries, uh, the whole Arab Spring thing has not turned out well. Uh, there were a lot of hopes that the Arab world was going to um, embark on more stable governments and so on, but the opposite is taken true, and it's, it's chaotic. Um, and so you say, all right, do we want the United States economy based on a system which has obviously not worked out the way we thought it would? Do we want to remain part of this international system of open trading all over the world to where an event completely on the other side of the world determines the oil price in the United States? And I say, I think we need to rethink this and see if we, need, we can set up another system. So with that, where are... So the future of the oil industry is really cloudy right now um, because of just what you mentioned. The policy being created are created by people who don't necessarily know maybe what they're talking about fully. Are there certain companies, are there certain avenues within the oil industry that you see being successful in the future? Yes. I think, uh, I think the industry is going to do well uh, as an overall industry. Now, the various participants in it may not. And, uh, and the policy in Washington seems to be believing in a continuous increase of American production. That's the first thing. I think that's a misperception. And I think we're already starting to see rig counts are going down. Um, certainly at 45 and $50 oil. Uh, with the price in that range where it looked like it was going to stay, the uh, concern is, are we really paying for the drilling cost? Now, oil, oil now trading on commodity markets, it shares the same problem that all commodities do. All commodities require huge upfront capital expenditures, and they always overbuild. It may, they may overbuild just slightly, but they overbuild. 
and then the price of that commodity drops when there's a surplus. It doesn't take much in a marginal pricing system on an open exchange. It doesn't take much surplus to drop the price. And the price right now is, has been held down by what most estimates put somewhere around a 1.5% surplus world capacity. 1.5% is certainly not a glut. People call it a glut, and people refer to it as a glut over and over. You'll read that in the literature. I don't call 1.5% a glut. It's a slight overcapacity. But it has maintained the price drop. Now, incidentally, the price drop in 2014 was not caused by a surplus of uh, production capacity. It was caused when the Federal Reserve stopped quantitative easing in August 2014, and they announced that ahead of time, mm -hmm. that they were going to do it. Now, they stopped it, and the price started down. And it was going down in August, it went down in September, went down in October, went down in November, and late November, the Saudis, the price was back down around the $75 range. And the Saudis said, you know, we, th we don't think we're going to shut in to maintain the oil price. We want to maintain our market share. So we're going to continue producing, and then the price just kept going down into 2015. But increases in storage in, in uh, storage areas there were no increases in storage until the first quarter of 15. And so obviously a surplus capacity of production was not what caused the price drop, although most people think it did. But it was an action by the Federal Reserve, and this is another problem with the government. They don't understand the interrelationship between various policies and what happens and the total interrelation between the value of the dollar and the price of oil which is something like a 92 to 93% correlation. So this, I get, this brings up a good, I, I want to talk about the petrodollar for a little bit, and I guess the impact that it's had on the industry right now. Well, when Kissinger was negotiating the end of the oil embargo, he made a deal with the Saudis, and he essentially said, okay, we will not defend the American companies if you want to throw them out which I think was one of the most egregious examples of a failure of the United States government to support its own citizens. And, but the State Department has been pretty good at not supporting them. And it, it, the State Department seems to have an anti-business uh, culture. And he said, all right, we will not support the American companies if you want to throw them out. And if you're going to increase price, okay. But we will continue to guarantee your security only if you uh, sell your oil in dollars. And that was what people called the petrodollar because that established that oil trading all over the world is done in U.S. dollars. The impact of that to this day is significant. And people can argue back and forth about how significant, what influence it's had, et cetera, et cetera. Um, people will say, all right, that basically you've got foreigners that are financing the U.S. debt. And so indirectly, foreigners are financing the United States Social Security system and by buying oil and dollars. And you can get into various debates over this, which uh, I don't think is a point here. But the fact that oil is traded in dollars has been a big benefit to the United States. I think we can say that. 
um, a lot of people resent that. And because this wonderful globalized world didn't turn out very well, it means what stopped the globalized world? Rivalries and competitions between various blocks and various people. And who are the, who are the problems that the United States, the main problems the United States has right now are with Russia, Iran, and China. North Korea, yes, that's a that's also a, a big problem, but it doesn't impact the oil market much unless you want to talk about the Chinese backing of North Korea. But that's a, those are long-term problems, and we have a major rivalry going with Russia, which is now one of the three largest producers in the world. The three largest producers are Russia, Saudi Arabia, and the United States and China and Iran, okay. Now, all three of them would like to get rid of pricing oil in dollars. The Chinese already buy a lot of oil from Russia and it's convenient for them. Russia's a, right there to their north with big oil fields and they now have pipelines. And those pipelines are relatively new in the last few years. And so China can access Russian oil now. The Russians just agreed to increase their supply to Russia by 600,000 barrels a day. The Chinese are paying for it in yuan, and Putin is glad to take yuan. He's happy to do it. And so if, because he can take those yuan and turn around and buy things from China, and China's got a lot of things for sale. Okay, Iran, are they going to, be willing to sell their oil for yuan, they might be, because they can also buy things from Russia and pay for it in yuan, and it circulates back to China. The Saudis j just made a trip, King of Saudi Arabia just made a trip to Moscow, made a $3 billion deal for arms and various other equipment and, and help and construction and one thing and another. Now, is he going to sell his oil in yuan and turn around and pay for the arms and so on in yuan to the Russians? Russians are happy to take it. So you may have the dollar system breaking down. The Chinese have announced that they're gonna start trading an oil contract on the Shanghai Exchange right around the end of the year. And that oil contract is gonna be traded in yuan and that, the yuan that they use for that is gonna be backed in gold. Now that's gonna be a major impact on the world economy, I think. And it's going to really disrupt currency relationships. And that is the end of part two. If you missed part one, or you're looking forward to part three, be sure to go to rarepetro.com and you can search Legacy or Kohlhaas, K-O-H-L-H-A-A-S, to find the other parts. Plenty of great knowledge from a professional with years and years of experience. And hey, we can learn from history, so I highly encourage you to go listen to those. But that is the end, and until we see you next time, take care, everybody.